Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing William Thatcher and friends from A Knight's Tale. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Allison Epstein. Welcome back, Allison. Thanks so much for having me back for one of my favorite pieces of media of all time. Really happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited uh, to have you back and also to talk about this. Um, it's... Uh, one of those films that just kind of still percolates, right? Like it, it's still kind of out there even 20, 20 years on. Uh, and so it was, it's going to be a fun one to dig into. Um, for anyone who is not familiar, A Knight's Tale is a medieval jousting action comedy from 2001. It was written and directed by Brian Helgeland and stars Heath Ledger as William Thatcher, Shannon Sossaman as Jocelyn, Rufus uh, Sewell as Count Adamar, Mark Addy as Roland, Alan Tudyk as Watt, Paul Bettany as Jeffrey Chaucer, and Laura Frazier as Kate. I feel like I, I don't know how many of those characters we're going to dig into, but I want to give credit to all those actors because it is a very good ensemble that, uh, that, that appears in this film. I could give you a two-hour lecture about each of those characters. I promise to hold myself back. But <laughs> this cast is stacked. It's wonderful. Well, and, and so many of them, this, this is very early in their careers uh, yeah. that they're, they're appearing in this. Like, I was looking it up, and Paul Bettany, uh, it seems like this is his first Hollywood film. Uh, like, he'd done some things in uh, in England, but this is, like, one of his, what he considers one of his big breaks. And Alan Tudyk had very few credits uh, before this. Um, and they're, they're two of those actors that are just like still just floating through the ecosystem and always a delight when you come across them. Yes. Alan Tudyk's always a secret in every movie you're watching because it's usually voice acting and it's never what you'd expect him to be. <laughs> recently learned he was the chicken in Moana, which I think is a delightful credit to have on your IMDb page. I saw, I, I, all I remember is seeing a video of him like in the voice booth doing the chicken noises and then he just <laughs> stops and goes, I studied at Juilliard. <laughs> 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 and in this movie, it's much the same thing. This man studied at Juilliard, and this is what he chose to do with it, and it's why I love him. Yeah. Um, we always ask how you first came to the work that we're discussing. Allison, do you remember when you first came to A Knight's Tale? Sort of. I remember my mom picked it out at a blockbuster a few years after it came out. It must have been like 2003, 2004 or something. So I was... Uh, a preteen at that time and of course at that time I was way too cool to watch any kind of movie that my mom brought home from Blockbuster but I remember sitting down to watch this and ever since then I'm just like oh someone made a movie exactly for me this is perfect <laughs> this is my perfect movie and ever since I've watched it probably once every couple of years ever since it's one of the the few movies I have on DVD I, I credit it as one of my biggest artistic inspirations I just think it's perfect so thanks blockbuster is the short story well that's it's a great moment for us to give you a chance to plug your work last time we had you on you were talking about your own novel a tip for the hangman uh and after we recorded um we were just chatting for a second and you said if if we ever do an episode on a night's tale you'd want to come back and uh we scheduled this return visit because you do have another novel coming out do you want to plug that real quick sure i will say off the bat it has absolutely nothing at all to do with the movie we're talking about but (laughs) If you want to know what historical fiction written by someone who's obsessed with a knight's tale sounds like, um, my new book coming out on October the 17th, so hopefully fairly soon when this episode drops, 
It's called Let the Dead Bury the Dead. And it's an alternate history, folklore-inspired story set in 19th century Russia, following three different characters kind of follow, falling their way through um, what I'm imagining is a social rebellion right in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. It does not involve any jousting, but I feel like it's spiritually related to this. Ah, missed opportunity there, right? I feel like my editor would have been like, hang on one second. <laughs> this, this feels a little out of context, a sudden jousting tournament. And I'm like, don't worry about it. It's fine. When you were talking about the setting and then you said as they, as they uh, like travel through, I was waiting for like the happiest days of their lives because that's what we all associate right. with. Right, right, right. <laughs> Russia in that era. 19th century Russia, the happiest times. It's yes. great for all. Classically, just the best of times. There's no other part. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a film that I um, like. I missed when it came out. Uh, it was like right when I was uh, finishing high school and and into college, and I missed it when it came out. But then uh, it was back in the rotation amongst like college students, uh, and, and so I definitely watched it when I was in college, and just enjoyed the uh, like the embrace of just a historical fun. Like, we're not trying to be super serious about anything. <laughs> we're yes. just going for a vibe here. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think it was successful in that, but in a way that confused some audiences and some critics who didn't quite know what to make of this. Uh, yes, I have read reviews of people who are upset at a lack of historical accuracy in this movie. And I, I want to ask those people, what did you take from the, the opening joust where they're, they're playing Queens, We Will Rock You in the background? What kind of movie did you think this was? Yeah, they do not like hide it. It's no. not like third act all of a sudden. Wait, this doesn't this this feels out of place. It is from the first shots of the film. They want you to know, don't come here for historical accuracy. Come here for a good time. Absolutely. Um, some trivia about the movie. So. <laughs> this gets credited as like an adapted screenplay of Chaucer's which is Night's wild Man. can i just say <laughs> you took the title <laughs> yeah i've read the the book a knight's tale from the canterbury tales none of this is happening yeah i, I believe there's a joust is that accurate <laughs> like, I think, maybe <laughs> i think there was a joust but there is nothing else that I, yeah. I it's up there for me with um uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Being credited as an adapted screenplay of the Odyssey. <laughs> right, right, right. Technically correct. The best kind of correct. <laughs> yes. Um, and we kind of touched on that. Sometimes critics didn't seem to know what to do with this. It was released in May of 2001, and it had a 59% score on Rotten Tomatoes as its current uh, rating there. And I, <laughs> I, I got to see if I can find the the description of this because. This tickled me where, uh, you know how Rotten Tomatoes gives their like summary, like yeah. this is kind of the final takeaway. Um, their summary was, uh, let's see, uh, once you get past the anachronisms, A Knight's Tale becomes a predictable, if spirited, Rocky on horseback. Two things. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rocky on horseback sounds fun. <laughs> that sounds amazing yeah. i'm here for it yeah no 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 qualms about that description you act as though like that's like oh you know you this is just that. rocky on horseback you but said, two, like, it's a bad thing i'm like this you... is the mighty ducks jousting i'm here for this yeah. <laughs> once you get past the anachronism it's like that critique we were mentioning before like that's the whole special flavor that's the special sauce of this film is all the anachronisms that's the purpose of making this film is to give us all these anachronisms so why right. are we trying to get past those once you get past the fun part it's a pretty standard movie i'm like yeah okay maybe if you just left the fun in you'd enjoy yourself <laughs> yes uh the film was um like a success but not a hit like you know I, i'd say it was a moderate success for them it made uh on its opening weekend 16.5 million dollars and 
I was like, oh, and they said it was second. I'm like, oh, what was that up against? It was going against the second weekend of The Mummy Returns, and I want to talk to whoever scheduled this. (laughs) (laughs) The Venn diagram of audiences that are going to be interested in The Mummy Returns and would also be interested in A Night Tale it seems to be a circle. So why but are you releasing these? were busy that weekend. And we couldn't go to both things. Why are you releasing these back to back? Right. I mean, that could have been like a Barbenheimer kind of double feature if they had marketed it right. But <laughs> yeah. I would have done both. Uh, the film would go on to make $56 million at the domestic box office and 61 at the international box office for a total of 111. I think its budget was around uh, like 50 million. So like I said, uh, that's reasonable return. Um, on that but it has gained definitely more of a cult following so Helgeland the director said he has some impressive writing and directing credits so he won an Academy Award for LA Confidential in 97 uh, and I think that got him the juice to be able to make this weird film (laughs) 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 I got my Academy Award now I'm doing this whatever you want (laughs) <laughs> this, this joust film with with the queen soundtrack um and it include he also won an academy oh sorry um let's see he also wrote and directed like the jackie robinson biopic uh 42 so like he's got well respected critically acclaimed well respected things uh you know that that were fully embraced but he said more people talk to him about a knight's tale than anything else that he's done you know, to this day um this is the one that comes up more when he's doing interviews trying to promote his most current work <laughs> which i'm sure he loves <laughs> yeah um some casting what ifs so paul walker was almost william thatcher uh and, but he ended up moving over and doing um fast and the furious which was a fine career move for him well, yeah, no regrets. <laughs> that, that definitely worked out uh daniel craig was almost count adamar that blows my mind i some of these are news to me and that one i did not know he'd so be there, great at it there was a, a like a retrospective piece from just a couple years ago with the director. I think it was for the 20th anniversary. And that's where a lot of this was in there. And he said it really was almost Daniel Craig. But then he decided uh, Rufus Sewell, Sewell's black hair was a better uh, antagonist look against uh, Heath Ledger um, as the protagonist rather than uh, having Daniel Craig. Now, I'm sure they could have dyed the hair, but uh, Rufus Sewell does just such great glowering. So. Oh, he smolders in the stands for an hour and a half. It's no no notes on his performance. <laughs> yes. I mean, if, if your bad guy's main, main principal job is to, like, look bitter, he made the right casting. You control. cannot find a better person. No. <laughs> yes. Um, also, uh, the studio wanted Hugh Grant to be Chaucer. <laughs> Sorry. Which I could not see 2001 Hugh Grant, but present day Hugh Grant, who just seems to be having fun and doing stuff because it sounds entertaining, I could absolutely see him as Chaucer. Present day Hugh Grant, whose most recent role is Anne Loompa. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> well, and in Dungeons and Dragons, basically evil Chaucer. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, I, I could see him doing that. But 2001, it doesn't feel quite right for Hugh Grant. No. Um, Drew Carey was the next studio note. <laughs> I want to fight the studio retroactively 20 years later. That's the worst suggestion I've ever heard. I can understand the suggestion of Hugh Grant. Yes. That makes sense. How is Drew Carey the next note that you get? This was like in the middle of Whose Lines It Anyway era, wasn't it? Like at least nearby. We we Mm -hmm. all knew a Drew Carey in our, okay, I'm not going to get angry about this 25 years after the fact. (laughs) That's a wrong choice. The director strongly fought for Paul Bettany. He desperately wanted Paul Bettany to get the role and had to have him do multiple screen tests, which the studio kept rejecting. I'm like, what was on the screen test? Because he is pure magic every single time he's on screen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
and then the other one was Kate Hudson was considered for the role of Jocelyn before they went with um, uh, Shannon Sossaman, whose previous credit was being a DJ at a Gwyneth Paltrow party, and the casting director saw her there. That's exactly what the character of Jocelyn is, though, is like the DJ you saw across the room at a party one time. Who so, just has something. Like, it. they just have it, so you're kind of drawn, even though you don't know why. The hats are great, the hair is great, we don't know what else is going on. Yeah. Uh, the film is set in vague medieval Europe, specifically Paris and London at some points, but otherwise it's kind of <laughs> vague, but it was entirely filmed in the Czech Republic. Um, and there is a lot, I mean, I didn't count, but there are many exploding lances in this film. So many. And they did that by hollowing out the lances, scoring them so they would explode, and then filling the hollowed portions with balsa wood shards and uncooked pasta. And then the <laughs> tips were just balsa wood. <laughs> They don't do practical effects like they used to, I tell you. Oh, yeah. Like, well, first, maybe for the best, because there seems to be some real danger in this these stunts that are being done. <laughs> yeah. Although I will note for anyone who watches movies the way I watch movies, all of the horses in this movie are fine. They all get up yes. and walk away at the end of every joust. Yeah, but I was going to say, particularly doing stunts with horses seems yes. to be dangerous where you might be falling under hooves of horses at any given moment yeah. um in explaining the anachronistic music choices and and the slang <laughs> that the director chose to put into this he argued that any film score and non-middle english language is anachronistic so i'm just going to embrace it <laughs> <laughs> and more power to him yeah he's like there, there weren't orchestras <laughs> if i did a traditional film score that's just as bad as, as queen, <laughs> queen or just as good yes and as far as anachronisms, let's, we can just go ahead and also mention the costumes, the hairstyles, the dance. Um, <laughs> All of it. <laughs> yes. And I, I didn't put this, write this down, but in that uh, interview with the director 20 years on, he mentioned uh, seeing an article that the headline was praising uh, Bridgerton for using modern pop music and dance styles. <laughs> and he's like, wait a second. And Hang he on a through. minute. <laughs> and, and he said they did mention a night's tale in the article. So he thought it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's this note in the Wikipedia page, as I was looking where the director says he was partially inspired as he was imagining what Chaucer was doing during six months that he went missing in 1372. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> now, I'm an English professor, but I do American lit and culture. So Chaucer is not my area of expertise, but I've never heard of this. And I, I went searching, like, are there missing six months in Chaucer's life? Because his life is actually pretty well documented because he had so many um, government jobs. Right. Uh, like, we could, we could point. And the only reference that I find when I search for this is back to this interview <laughs> where he talks <laughs> about the missing six months in Chaucer's life. <laughs> I love that. And also, I love that it's six months in the year 1372. Like, yeah. I probably go six months without doing anything that gets written down all the time. Like, what, what, are, you, what are you missing six months? Like, wh missing three weeks when you didn't post on Twitter or something? I don't know. So I, I don't know <laughs> where that came from, but it gave us a night's tale. For uh, that, I'm grateful. Yes. Well, uh, before we jump into the spoiler zone, uh, where we break down 
all the plot of this film. We want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of this podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the plot summary of a Knight's Tale, which is pretty straightforward. Most of the the joy that you would get from watching this film would be some combination of Heath Ledger and uh, and the the vibes of all this anachronistic fun that doesn't necessarily come through in a plot summary. So just know, like this is going to sound pretty pretty straightforward here. I was it watching. Sounds like this. we're describing Rocky and horses because we are. So. Yeah, <laughs> I was watching this with my wife, and uh, you know, at the start of the film when he's he's the squire, he's got like dreadlocks and he's uh, uh, a a weird beard. It's <laughs> a whole look that beard. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you know, very early on in the film, like he shaves it and cuts his hair, and when it gave like the close up shot, she says. Oh yeah, there's the face of my teenage years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, we're at a jousting tournament in the 14th century. Again, just vague fantasy medievalness, basically. Some squires discover that their master is dead. Rather than forfeit, William convinces Roland and Watt, the other squires, to help him put on Sir Ector's armor so that he can compete in his place and win them some money. Though he gets hard in the joust, he stays mounted, which lets him claim the prize. Um, he hatches a plan to keep going to tournaments and earn more prize money. He's not very good at jousting, though, so we're going to get a comedic training montage, and I love a good training montage. So, no notes. Give me more, even. That might be my only note. <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack to the training montage is Lowrider, which is spectacular. <laughs> yes. Uh, only nobles are allowed into the tournaments. They haven't quite worked out what they're going to do about this. Uh, but while they're walking to the tournament, they run into Geoffrey Chaucer, a very eloquent naked man. And he's very naked for a while. <laughs> I'm surprised how many shots of Chaucer's rear end we get in this film. Um, <laughs> Chaucer offers to forge a patent of nobility if they will give him clothes and food. So he joins this merry little band. Uh, and William enters the tournament now as Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein of Gilderland. Uh, during the jousting, William's armor is damaged and he gets a blacksmith named Kate to do the repair. One other note I didn't put in the trivia, but the director was very adamant that the uh, guild rules for blacksmiths said that a wife could take over the shop and do minor blacksmithing work if the husband died. And so he's like, everyone gives me grief about Kate being a blacksmith. But he's like, it was there. That's the one thing that was true in this movie, actually. <laughs> yes, that's what I want to defend. <laughs> Everything. Um, uh, William is going to show honor to a wounded combatant, which uh, a noble woman named Jocelyn notices. And she also notices that William is very attractive. Uh, William is sneered at by Count Adamar, uh, who defeats him in a joust. And this is going to bother William a great deal for quite a while. Uh, Kate, uh, that blacksmith, is going to forge William a new lightweight armor. At the next tournament, Adamar forfeits rather than joust Sir Colville. William is told that Colville is really Prince Edward, the future king of England. William chooses to joust against him anyway, and he earns Edward's respect for not uh, backing down. Adamar is called away to war. William wins the next several contests, uh, but is always upset that he's not beating Adamar. He also is going to flirt with Jocelyn. At a big tournament in Paris, uh, after 
he, uh, William's friends had helped him to write a touching love letter in which we learned a little bit more about each one of them and their, their lost loves. Um, and they send this letter to Jocelyn and it feels very heartfelt to her. Uh, but when he meets in person, William tries to flirt and it just is awful and terrible and awkward because he's not very <laughs> eloquent and he says all the wrong things and he, he promises he's going to win the tournament for her. And she says, well, that's just for your own honor. That has nothing to do with me. And she says, if he really wants to prove that he loves her, he should go lose. So he does. He just stands there and takes a beating. And finally, after watching this for several rounds, she goes and says he can, he's allowed to do his best. And he proceeds to move from the bottom of the standings to the top and win this tournament, which is fortunate because uh, Chaucer in this film has a gambling problem and had made a major heavy, <laughs> major wager on Involved William losing his clothes again. Yes. More Chaucer, but in this scene. Uh, the group travels to London for the world championship. Just, just go with it. William yeah. <laughs> is from London. Uh, and when he was a little boy, his father took him to be a squire to Sir Ector. And we get this flashback of where like, he and his father definitely do have a good relationship. Uh, but his father is hoping that being a squire to a knight will give William a better life and a chance to improve his fate to change his stars as he says so william returns to cheapside where he grew up his father has gone blind and uh william visits him and they have a tearful reunion uh and this is the moment where like the film actually is like oh there's some like real emotional heft happening here uh this reunion of father and son but adamar has spied on william and reveals uh to everyone that william lied about being a noble so william is put into the stocks now Watt, Roland, Kate, and Chaucer, his, his merry band, try to protect William from the hostile crowd. Prince Edward reveals himself and orders William to be freed. He says that he sees that his men love him, which the film does some interesting like feminist things. But <laughs> the king right here is like, I see your men love you. Like Kate is right there. <laughs> um, and that reveals that William is a good man. And um, Edward is going to knight William because he has found that he has ancient royal bloodlines or, or noble bloodlines, uh, and no one should ever question this. So William gets knighted and can return to the world championship joust. Uh, he faces Adamar in the final. We all knew he would. Adamar cheats. We all knew he would. And wounds William badly. William can barely hold his lance, uh, and he has to unseat Adamar entirely from his horse in the last run if he's going to win. He orders his armor removed, uh, so because uh, he, he can barely breathe in, breathe in it, and that his lance be tied to his arm. And then he nails Adamar, who tumbles from his horse. He's entirely unseated. William wins. And friends and family celebrate. The end. All right, Allison. Before we get into everything that we love about this film, do you have any nits you want to pick? Anything that maybe doesn't, you know, the, oh, I wish this was maybe just a little different. Mm, I, the only nit that I have with this film, which again, I've said before, we'll say again, I think it's a perfect movie. I want there to be an extra 20 minutes of Kate in this movie. Mm -hmm. She's the best. And I loved her the first time I saw this. I wanted to be Kate. And they, I want her to have more to do than stand around and look at the men and say, look at you, silly men. I can do this better than you. Because she can't. Right. She absolutely can't. But mm -hmm. I want, I wanted Kate to joust. That's, that's my knit. She invents the Nike swoosh, right? She does. <laughs> I am amazed she, they didn't get sued for that. She puts the swoosh on her armor as her, as her maker's mark. <laughs> um, my one thing that I kind of wish, I wish there was some explanation of, 
what skills is needed in the jousting <laughs> that makes like the finale like he did the right thing because it always seems like you both get hit with the stick every time except for at the end <laughs> right like what did he do that made him be able to hit Adamar before Adamar hit him without any armor other than the fact that he wasn't wearing armor so we were never gonna see him get hit no the only rules of jousting you need to know are if you fall off that's bad they will narrate the rest of it <laughs> Like, there's some nods to, like, he's so brave. William is so brave. That's what makes him a great jouster. Um, right. But, th- like, for the last run, I was waiting for, like, some explanation as to, like, how is he not going to get killed right now? He doesn't. Good. <laughs> Yay. He doesn't get killed because he's Heath Ledger, and he's yeah. <laughs> immortal because his smile is so handsome in this film. Uh, your note about Kate. Uh, the director did say that he often has been told that people wish that William and Kate had gotten together instead of William and Jocelyn. And... I can understand that. <laughs> I can understand that. I disagree. I think yeah. Kate, Kate's husband should have come back and then they should have like taken on Paris in A Knight's Tale 2, <laughs> Too Fast, Too Furious. I don't know. Oh, the director had some ide- some notes about his ideas for A Knight's Tale 2, which uh, is still being talked about as a possibility. I want uh, you to know if that comes out in theaters, I will be impossible to be around for the next five years. I will never stop talking. And Kate was at the center of some of the discussions that he had uh, for that. <laughs> um, all right. So we got some of our nitpicks out of the way. Uh, what do you want to praise? Like what What for you makes this a favorite film? For me, honestly, it's Paul Bettany's performance as Chaucer, which is mm-hmm. just, I, it's so good. It's, I don't know if this was in the script as directed or if this is what he just decided to do, but he's playing it like a WWE announcer. Yes, he's a hype a man. medieval joust. And he's also so emotionally sincere through the whole thing that, like, it's heartbreaking and ridiculous at the same time. And it's such a hard line to walk. And I, every time I watch it, it makes me happy. Um, I guess, okay, my one other nit. <laughs> I had forgotten about it. I wanted to see Chaucer give a speech to defend William when he was in the stocks. Mm. Um, and, like, turn the crowd into, like, William's favor. Yeah. I understand why they didn't do that, because, mm-hmm. you know, like, they're showing... The king is the that, big that was all, Well, it was all, his words were all an elaborate illusion that he was able to call yeah. up, and when everything is stripped away, all you have is, like, the demonstration of your love and your friendship. The poetry mm-hmm. doesn't get you anywhere. Devotion does. And I, I get yeah. it. But yeah, his speech there would have been amazing. Or even the, even if it, like, if we didn't get that one, even if his speech to the Londoners about William being like one of them, if that had been a little grander and like really yeah. turned the crowd and like, like it's there and it's all right, but I've seen Chaucer do better <laughs> in this film. But yes, <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> he yeah. is a delight. And it's um, Paul Bettany. I, I saw an interview with him where he said when he was asked to do the voice of Jarvis for the Avenger for Iron Man, yeah. he said he was near retiring from acting because he just he didn't feel like he was getting any work and he he was he thought he'd lost the craft. And I watched this. I'm like, how is this man not in everything? <laughs> uh, um, I would hire him to read the phone book at me in his Chaucer impression. Just yeah, every it, single time he comes on screen, I'm like, oh, there he is, the main character of this film. Yeah, yeah, he he is just magnetic. Like he's just pure charisma, and that's what that role is supposed to be. Is like the most charismatic speaker uh, that that you've seen, and to like blend it with the idea of, like you said, a professional wrestling hype man uh, and Jeffrey Chaucer, <laughs> it, it, something about it is just perfect. And then Paul Bettany, it makes it 
more perfect. And I know there's not like degrees of perfection. Perfect is perfect. You can't be more perfect, but it is more perfect with Paul Bettany in the role. Yeah. And I I really, but the other thing I love is how his charisma plays against Heath Ledger's charisma, which is just as like blindingly powerful, but a totally different kind of charisma in this movie. Like uh, William Thatcher is the quintessential like youthful, naive hero who thinks he can take on the world. And he's just the most little lovesick romantic puppy, but mm-hmm. in love with both the idea of glory and with the idea of this woman that he's seen one time. And it's so hard to do that character in a way that doesn't seem off-putting because we've seen it so many times. But he brings such like real earnestness to it that I I believe him from the jump. Yes. Uh, yeah, the character of William, it, it, that description that you gave is like, you know, the the coming of age, <laughs> who's sure. going to like earn his place in the world. Yeah, that, that's absolutely what this, this story is. Like me against the world. Uh, I mean, me and my best friends, and there's gonna be a lot of them, and they're all gonna have their own special skills against the world. Um, and to, to see it triumph. I, there's one move in this film, though, that I don't think I've, I noticed it the first couple times I watched it, but it did stand out a little bit that maybe that might have been a misstep narratively. And... What it is, is near, when we get the flashback of young William being made a squire to Sir Ector, mm-hmm. it seems like Sir Ector is actually like a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to become a father figure for him. And I understand they they don't want this to be a jerk that his, that William's real father is passing him on to. So because we, because a heart of this film is going to be the relationship between William and his father. And so this needs to like be an obvious good thing for young William. But then when you think back to the very beginning of the film and Sir Ector is dead and William's like just looting his corpse for, for the <laughs> armor, there's no emotion at all present in that. And that suddenly like made me think back to that opening scene. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know if you struck the right tone here at the very beginning of the film. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't know what the solution for that is because it's either his father leaves him with a terrible, abusive master, which makes me suspicious of the father then or we start this jaunty comedy off with someone crying over a dead body in an open field which is also a really hard yeah. note to start out on so yeah yeah i understand why so there's an and there's enough distance between him getting the armor of sir Ector and then the flashback yeah you're right that though. that for a lot of audience I, I don't think you even really connect like there was even a half second where my wife and i were like that's is that sir Ector from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> And then once we realized, like, oh, was it seems like this was a father figure to him, or or would have become a father figure in the intervening twelve years, or if not a father figure, at least somebody you'd think twice before looting the corpse of. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, like we said, there's reasons for how, how and why these choices probably ended up the way they were, and one of them I think is because they want to ensure that we are invested in William and his father's relationship. Because for me, even more so than like William and Jocelyn being together at the end, William being re- reunited with his father had more emotional weight to it and was more successfully executed, at least for me. Yeah, I think so too. I think they they spent more time building out the father's character. He has hopes and desires and wishes. And mm-hmm. Jocelyn has some really, really nice hats in this movie. <laughs> and, and some... some almost distracting hair choices at times. <laughs> I would say appropriately distracting. Yes, it looks yes. like she ransacked the Claire's in 2001 and wore it to the house. Like more feathering on the side, more. <laughs> I cannot emphasize enough how much she is carrying those outfits because if it was a different actress who didn't have the confidence to show up at a joust in like a crimped 
bright pink feathered wig. Like, mm-hmm. that could have been a disaster, but Shannon's awesome. So, like, yeah, I got this. Let's do it. And so I respect <laughs> her for working with what she was given. Yeah, and I think appropriately distracting is maybe a good description. Because yes. it's something, like, you comment on, but also it's like, that's fine. <laughs> it's good. It works here. look at her, too, across the room, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um we've mentioned like the all the anachronisms are reasons that we love this film do you have any favorite ones that stand out where it's like okay well clearly that doesn't belong there but it's just right that it is here i'm not sure if this is an anachronism i mean it is an anachronism because it's in this movie but it's my favorite line from the movie is when they're the william and company are in a tavern in paris somewhere and they're they're fighting with a bunch of drunk frenchmen about who's going to win the joust the next day and one of the the Frenchmen like raises his beer up and says, "Well, you know, we're gonna win because the Pope is French." And I think Chaucer looks back at him and goes, "Well, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English." And it's like, that makes me laugh so hard every time because <laughs> it's just ridiculous, but also exactly what a British person would say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um. I like that you said, like, when they're in Paris, it's like, I, I could not tell you very little that's distinct between the, the Paris and the London and anywhere else. <laughs> I only knew it was Paris or adjacent because they were speaking in a bad French accent. Yes. <laughs> One assumes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, the, I, for me, like, just what captures everything right is when the crowd is singing We Will Rock You at the very beginning of, yes. of the joust. It's like, mm-hmm. there's no opening salvo that could better give you what the tone of this film is going to be uh, than that. And then they're, they're doing the wave and all these other things. And um, it, it, it's almost like the, uh, it was around the same time that when uh, the much more serious gladiator film was coming out, um, right. they, I remember an advertising, advertising campaign they did where they were cross cross cutting the gladiators fighting with NFL football highlights. <laughs> And okay. <laughs> trying to say like in their commercials, like this, this is just entertainment. This is just entertainment. Everyone like the entertainment was different then, but this is just entertainment. And uh, I think that's what, you know, the mood we're getting at these jousting tournaments is like, yeah, this is just like the big community crowd in the arena watching the action. Yes. It's the first, I, I think it captures the energy of seeing a joust at a Renaissance fair. A hundred percent dead on the nose. It's perfect. <laughs> So I've never done that. Have you seen a joust in person? Several times. I am embarrassed and proud to say. Oh, there's no shame. <laughs> and it's exactly uh, like that. It's like you're standing at a football game surrounded by the dirtiest nerds you've ever seen. <laughs> and and so, yeah, to use our modern equivalent of how the crowds act at sporting events, go go ahead and, and do that. And um it lets the audience know exactly what they're in, in for uh, with this film. But there's other fun ones in the, the music choices and the dance scenes and, uh, you know, the hairstylings. Like, there's there's all sorts of things that are that are fun that absolutely there's no effort to try and accurately represent the late 1300s Europe. Oh, none at all. The, the celebratory ball dance number is really, really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Though I will say, like, what I'm saying, like, there's no effort. Chaucer... It like goes off on the uh, the um, the gambling uh, collector, and that yeah. that th- is accurate. George. Yes, <laughs> that was so one of like, the English majors. Yeah, there are a few jokes that if you've read Canterbury Tales or you were made to read Canterbury Tales, like that's actually pretty smart and, and very specific and uh, un unlike the rest of this film. 
Yes. <laughs> so I was like a very pointed uh, Chaucer reference coming through. Absolutely. This is a slight aside, but one of my other favorite movies will not surprise you, but all to know is Shakespeare in Love. And it's almost the exact mm-hmm. same thing where it's like, this whole yep. thing is ridiculous, anachronistic. And then there's a little John Webster joke for the English majors. I'm like, aha, here we go. <laughs> one fact. <laughs> See, we did research when we were writing this. <laughs> we read the Wikipedia page top to bottom. <laughs> yes. All right, you mentioned that you could talk about every one of these characters for hours. Uh, let's let's run through the characters and say why they stand out. Because I think there is one reason why this film does work so well is this strange ensemble, both meaning the group of actors and the characters that they're playing, does work so well. And there's great chemistry here. Yes. So uh, who would you like to talk about first? Well, we've gone this long without talking about Count Adamar yet, which seems oh. like a terrible oversight because what a what a sneaky little villain he is and he's <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to see a really classically trained talented talented actor like rufus sewell just come on and start chewing scenery it's so mm-hmm. wonderful he's having such a good time yes with his um like so patriarchal flirting with jocelyn <laughs> he's so smarmy and so sexy and so evil and with even his horse is sexy and evil. It's <laughs> great. Like when he he's like, let me explain the rules. <laughs> it's like, and uh, every woman in the theater is like, yeah, I've met that man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, you're going to tell me what a first down is? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a, he's playing a type here. Yeah. Again, a modern type just being transported back. Though so I have a sense that that might be a. A, a type without boundaries of time. I do feel uh, that's a tale as old as time. People yes. are like, would you like to hear the real story of the Hundred Years' War? And every woman is like, no, I would not. Thank you. Let me tell you what I'm an expert at. <laughs> even if you have no interest. Or even if you already know. Yeah, I will <laughs> tell you again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he has... Um, the look of a villain in this piece. Some of that is his costuming. Some of it is he, his facial features do allow him to give that kind of sneering, looking down upon uh, someone else, either in derision or a sense of proprietorial ownership, like he does with Jocelyn, right? He he can definitely uh, pull that out off. And he, he has one of those faces that is so distinct. We're like, I, I remember seeing him in a movie that I think I saw once on VHS in like 1996 in Cold Comfort Farm, but I still remember him in Cold Comfort <laughs> Farm. <laughs> and and like in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, I'm like, oh, he's Fort Brown. <laughs> I remember him showing up in the background of a scene in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I was like, hang on a minute. You know that yeah. sneaky face that I don't trust. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and he's made it work like for his career, but this is another one, like this is pretty early on in his in his career in Hollywood, I think that, mm-hmm. you know. And like all the, characters in this film they all kind of have that one little trait that sums them up it's very archetypal he's playing the man who follows the rules and thinks because he follows the rules that means he gets to win he's he's the he is the system and William Thatcher is the anti-system and so it's like none of them are deep complicated personalities but they're Mm -hmm. so recognizable immediately that it's just it's just a pleasure to watch a story that you already kind of know how it's going to go well, he loves the system so long as it means he's winning. As soon as it he's not, right. he will break the rules. <laughs> but he has the system always has made sure he wins because yes. he has. So, so why would he ever question the system? Right? There's nothing wrong with this system. It is inherently perfect. I love the system, and the system loves me. Hang on a minute. 
<laughs> now when he's gonna when he's gonna cheat at the end uh and his assistant's like uh don't worry the 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 blunt top of your uh, of your uh lance it's called lance hello uh <laughs> is is not really blunt it's spun sugar did they have spun sugar that they could craft like that <laughs> I, okay i think they had spun sugar in medieval times i don't think you could get spun sugar and attach it to the head of a lance and then run through the sun in the summer with it outside yes and it's crafted to look exactly like his iron version or, or you know whatever right. the version like, I think you could make a really nice cake for like King Edward the First, but mm-hmm. I don't think you could do practical effects. With but it. I'm I'm gonna have three of these ready to go yes, <laughs> right away in my sugar pocket. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, just want to get up there too about Count Adam since That's we're talking fair. about him. Um. All right. What other character shall we talk about? Uh, which of his his little coterie, his entourage? I always put Roland and Watt together in my head. They're yeah, they're. Yeah. They're peanut butter and jelly, the two of them. Roland is the somewhat more emotionally intelligent friend who you'd actually mm-hmm. go to if you had a problem. And Watt is just a plastic bag full of a wet cat. He's just a disaster. And he can't <laughs> think straight, can't, can't express himself well. He's always about three seconds away from punching someone in the face. But he loves William so much and he's so loyal. And so it's just... I love them both. They're the weirdest little tag team. And I always believe that they want what's best for William, even when they think he's being an idiot and they will tell him to his face. Yeah. Roland is the friend that has some skills and some common sense, right? Yes. He, he's going to help legitimately help William out by, you know, he, he's going to sew him his cloak when he needs a cloak uh, on very little notice uh, for, for a dance. He's, he's the, the mom friend of the group. He's like, I have band-aids in my pocket if you need them. Yes. That, oh, thank you. Yeah, the mom <laughs> friend. That That is perfect. Why is the friend that's just always there and you're not quite sure why? <laughs> like, what, what happened to you that made you this way? <laughs> yes. And like you said, he's not useful, but he's so loyal, he becomes useful. You'd much rather have him on your side than against you. Oh, yes. <laughs> as Chaucer learns very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's both of them... As far as the performance, like Alan Tudyk just commits to being the weird little medieval man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And there's something about him going all out that makes you like not question or even worry about why he is the way he is. It's just, well, that's Watt. (laughs) This is what Watt's going to want, you know? (laughs) Yes. And like if if he had been less committed, I think you would have started like question what the character motivations are. Sure. because of how Alan Tudyk plays him, she's like, well, this is just what Watt is. Right. Don't worry about it, man. He's <laughs> <Yeah>. just nuts. <laughs> but in a sweet way. Yeah. And his hair is so red for this. They yeah. had to up the redding on, on his hair, right? What's the Muppet that doesn't talk but has the bright red hair and kind of beeps around? Uh, uh, Bunsen and... Uh, uh, is it Beaker? Is it Beaker? I, yes. think, yeah, I think Watt, the brief was, play Beaker but mad. And that's what he does. <laughs> that is that is a great description. Yeah, he is definitely a Muppet. Like, that's the level of character depth that we're getting on Watt. Yes, but what a charming Muppet he is. And and throughout the film, he, he, he uses the threat to fong someone. <laughs> <laughs> and both of them and I are like, is that something from 
like middle English that just hasn't hasn't persisted and the screenwriters pulled it up and I looked it up and all I can find are people debating okay. what in the world this word is <laughs> it gets used many times in a knight's tale and some linguists saying it could be a version of this middle English word but the word fong does not exist in middle English but because there's this word that's a little similar maybe they're being very accurate I think they just made up a word uh, 100% <laughs> they just made and put it in Alan Tudyk's mouth I don't think this was like research of like if I verb conjugate this middle English word in this way it could land over here we don't even know what city we're in 80% of this film I don't think yes. they went to the OED <laughs> yeah yeah I think it's just but but it is also a word like it, he's so confident when he says it I'm like I, it must be coming from uh Canterbury Tales like someone says that in the oh, English you could iambic <laughs> pentameter that if you need to do yeah <laughs> but it turns out it's not <laughs> All right, you mentioned you developed an immediate affinity for Kate when you watched this film. I did. I did. There, I love her. I there's something about her her performance from Laura Fraser that has it's so different than the Chaucer or the Alan Tudyk like over the topness or the Heath Ledger smolderingness, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of of that you know what draws you to them. She has given so little to do, but you are drawn to her, and you like you like you noted earlier. You want to see more. Um, you 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 wish we had more of her because she she's just interesting. And it's not just you know being a woman in this ragtag group of men. It's not just being a woman as a blacksmith when you expect all the blacksmiths to be men. Uh, I can't put my finger on it what it is, but Laura Fraser is bringing something to the screen where it's like oh, I wish there was more Kate. Yeah, she's just she's so competent and like. She, you can tell if you gave her a task, she's going to figure it out and she's going to do it and she's not going to break a sweat doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, it just makes me wonder, like, how did she get where she is right now? I think she makes a reference in one throwaway line to a husband. And I don't recall if the yeah, husband that, is away at war or. No, he's died, I think. And that's why she's able to be a blacksmith. Okay. The, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's a late husband. I want that story because, you know, whatever man was good enough for Kate must have been someone really special. And yeah, and like when uh, when the group of friends are trying to protect uh, William when he's in the uh, in the stocks, yeah, like she's the one there standing with hammers. I'm like, she's the one I actually think could defend me. Yes, <laughs> like, these, don't cross Kate with a hammer. These other bozos are just standing there, kind of like, don't don't throw the rotten fruit at my friend. She's like, if anyone came in, she's the one that would drop them. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. And I actually really appreciated that she was never in the running as like, ooh, it's a Jocelyn, Kate, William love triangle. Mm -hmm. Because like, I feel like in this era of film, there was a lot of that girly girl versus the tomboy going for the guy. And I, you know, I really love that they just let Kate be a badass hammer wielding friend. Like Mm -hmm. it didn't ever feel like they were trying to shoehorn her into a romantic plot. And because I feel like I see so many of those, it was refreshing but you're right that it also did not give her as much to do as i might have liked yeah and you saying that she's competent like of the like this main group (laughs) like chaucer's amazingly competent at speaking and then everything else he's a mess he's he's a disaster (laughs) uh watt is just a mess and a disaster period like i don't know what his strength would be if i was trying to like if they were about to try and pull off a heist and you were listening like what do we have uh stay by the van and don't touch anything (laughs) like if we need a distraction we will send in watt that is it that is the only thing i can imagine he's a diversion (laughs) yes 
Uh, Roland, uh, he's the one that actually like understands jousting, it seems. And, <laughs> and uh, it, like I said, he instantly makes a cloak that looks very well tailored uh, yes. for William. So, you know, he, he's the one that is kind of the problem solver. William has his his fighting skills that he learns through one training training montage. So he's some competent competency there. And then the you know, he's he's the face. Yeah. <laughs> he's very handsome. <laughs> but but then uh you, you get to Kate. It's like, oh, she can actually do everything that she needs. Like <laughs> if, if I had one person, like I was left alone with one member of this group and needed to get the job done, I think it would be Kate over the, anyone else. Oh gosh, yeah. You're picking like your apocalypse partner. I'm like, Kate, hands down. Nope. <laughs> Yeah. I would love to have a drink with Chaucer, but God, he would be useless. <laughs> Zombies are coming. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just wish we had a little bit more about her. Um, I, I went and found that uh, that interview, just the ideas that have been floated around for a sequel. So early on, the idea that this um, uh, the writer-director had was that... Um, uh, because Watt mentioned wanting to buy a ship. Oh my god. <laughs> it was to become a pirate film. Oh my god. <laughs> With all of them on a pirate adventure. <laughs> to your listeners, this is real glee coming through my microphone. Where right Adamar had kidnapped Jocelyn. <laughs> so you do get the jam- damsel in distress, which is like, okay, do we have to do the damsel in distress? But Adamar has kidnapped Jocelyn and I'm sure would have many monologues at her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Hopefully she uh, would steal Adamar's ship by the end. Ha- has taken her to Constantinople, is what he said. <laughs> Okay. And then they go to rescue her. Uh, but he said they couldn't get anything. But then he said, Paul pitched an idea six months ago <laughs> that William and Jocelyn have a daughter who wants to get into jousting, but can't take her mask off because women are allowed to joust. So uh, we're going to follow this woman who's 18 to 20 years old and her father's old friends are going to try and help her uh, make I've it in the jousting too. scene. <laughs> so those are the, the two ideas. I, and none of those are like Kate centric, but I oh, think pirate Kate. Oh Let's yeah. Go. I was like, if, if you're having a pirate adventure again, Kate is the one of this group I would want with me. I bet you she knows how to navigate. No one else <laughs> <Yeah>. does. <laughs> yes. And if the story is about uh, William's daughter trying to make her way in a man's world, Kate better be centered in that oh my story. Gosh. Aunt Kate, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still hung up on the pirates. Cause now I'm just imagining Roland, like stitching all the sails together out of tents. And you know Chaucer would be like standing on the bow of the ship in in a storm, screaming oh, into the rain. Yeah. <laughs> Where's oh. this movie? I will pay for it myself. If only we'd had that one, or we now get the one about oh now now that I'm thinking that Kate would have to and Kate would have to be so important to the story, I really want them to go make the, this 20 years later, which Hollywood does all the time, and a lot of times it's like, why are we going here? That one I would I would go there. Yeah. I, I think you could do the daughter because uh, because Heath Ledger passed tragically mm-hmm. so young. You couldn't replace him. But oh, no. do his child. That feels great, honestly. Yeah. And and it, if if you say it's because they're coming together for, for their old pal's daughter, it's like you get the gang back together immediately, yeah. right? That's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. There's no hesitation on getting this this, this crew uh, back back for that particular story. And Count Adamar is like, I will come back and menace the daughter of my rival <laughs> very <Yes>. well. <laughs> well, clearly his son is trying to become the jousting championship and keeps getting bested by this mysterious. Who would his son be? We have to cast that. Oh my goodness. I'll think about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. We haven't talked much about Jocelyn and I think there's probably a reason. She's maybe a little light 
as far as characterization uh, in the film. She has great screen presence uh, and she does get the flirting scene, I think is the highlight for her uh, when she puts William in his place for flirting poorly and doing the kind of flirting where he's kind of telling the woman why she should be impressed with him. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the extent of William's skill there uh, in the church flirt scene. Uh, but is there anything about Jocelyn that you want us to highlight? I, I think you're, I said before and I'll say again, the actress is doing the best job with this role. I would have loved this role to have been written a little bit more deeply, but that said, I do personally really appreciate the scene where Jocelyn challenges William. If you really love me, you Mm -hmm. will lose. That's how you'll show me by giving up something that's important to you. That felt to me like William's one moment of like emotional growth in this movie where he's like, Oh, maybe it's not about me being the best. Maybe it's about listening to others. And I appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, we, we all love a good underdog story. Um, But as far as like thematic weight to this film, Maybe not a ton here. (laughs) This is a film you watch for fun, not to think about the human condition or to see massive character transformation uh, along the way. Um, I I do. Oh, I I didn't put it in the script who played his father. Uh, Let's see. Who was that? Uh, Christopher Casanova played William's father. And I do want to shout out that performance because again, I got more like emotional success in terms of, storytelling making you feel something out of William and his father uh, and and their reunion than I did out of like William getting Jocelyn at the end. <laughs> yeah. No, his father just wanted him to be happy and, and make something well, and to, of himself because that would make him happy. It was- and, and to have a better life. Like that's my whole, like as a father, my whole purpose right now is to give you a better life than what I am capable of providing you as a Thatcher. Like my lot in life does not allow for upward mobility. If I make you a squire to a knight, there may be some opportunity for you to change your stars, uh, is what he says. But I also Um, really got the sense from him that it wasn't about money. It wasn't about, can you marry this rich girl and become mm -hmm. a more noble person than I was? It was, you're going to find this personally satisfying and you're going to have a, a more fulfilling life than I did. And I appreciated that too. Yeah. Um, so like of the side characters, like the one that is like least a caricature <laughs> is is the father that is in what, four or five minutes of screen time? It's a good five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but it is so good. And it, it also is where I feel like the most humanizing of William uh, happens, you know, yes. in in those moments. Um, <clears throat> oh, this is why you're like this. OK, mm-hmm. you want him to be proud of you. I get it. Yeah. Uh, and like the next runner up would also be like what you identified, like when Jocelyn kind of puts him in his place, like mm, you you say you're going to win this contest that brings you all the glory to impress me. <laughs> it's like, right. that's not for me. That's very self-aggrandizing. Uh, and uh, the pummeling that he takes, I will just note, uh, not just when he is losing on purpose, but even when he's winning, I just had the thought of like, how are any of these people who joust... <laughs> have any cognitive functioning <laughs> like oh, how sure. many concussions have they layered on concussions and then body bruising and aches and how many shoulders are out of joint like if you dislocate your shoulder multiple times and there's no surgery to tighten things back up wow. uh, and that's I when just... everything goes well because you read the horror <laughs> stories of people who die in jousting in the most horrifying ways you've ever heard of and it's just mm-hmm. like 
how did we do this for so many hundreds of years? Yes, that is like as you watch this and, and like, you know, like, OK, well, this is all movie magic. This is all stuntmen. But like the thought is going like people really did this. Yeah, they didn't do it with balsa wood and pasta. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how did anyone survive any of this, much less become like known yeah. <laughs> for, for doing this? They let kings do this. That seems wild to me. <laughs> I mean, there had to be so many concussions. Just yeah. so, so many. If you could get the brain to study CTE on a jousting <laughs> participant, it would not paint a pretty picture. Maybe that's what happened to Watt. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't seem to know a lot about jousting. No, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he he was the best yes. in his town as a young man. <laughs> uh, well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Nice Tale. Is there anything you want to make sure we say about this film before we wrap up? I feel like we've said everything that I hold dear in my heart about this movie. Um, thanks for letting me sort of invite myself on to talk about it. Oh, you you are always welcome. And uh, once again, we timed this because you have a book coming out. So could, do you want to plug your book one more time? Absolutely. Um, it's called Let the Dead Bury the Dead, available in uh, hardcover, ebook, and audio on October 17th. Uh, again, it's the alternate history of uh, 19th century Russian Revolution. It's got myth and magic and violence and love and all kinds of things in it. I'm very proud of it. And if you want to pick it up at a bookstore near you, that would be amazing. And uh, I would also still plug your your first novel, A Tip for the Hangman, which we talked about on this podcast about 10 months ago, I want to say. Uh, a wonderful historical fiction about uh, Christopher Marlowe and um, what a genius but insufferable man <laughs> he was <laughs> yes 100 percent true all right well that is going to wrap up this episode listeners thanks for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank scott talk to you who composed our theme music thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story He directed that... Uh, hmm, I'm just going to give that a fresh take entirely.